This is attorney Andy Markintel joining me today, attorney Mark Victor via the telephone, and you are listening to the Peace Radical Show. Mark is going to be talking to us all the way from beautiful Hawaii. How's it going, Mark? Fantastic, man. It's always good in Hawaii. I mean, we're suffering a little bit today because there's a cloud or two in the sky, but otherwise, you know, about 80 degrees and sunny, pretty much the same it is every day, so... There you have it. I should mention that the Attorneys for Freedom, our law firm, has offices currently in Arizona and Hawaii, and I'm reporting here from the Arizona office. Mark is in the Hawaii office. So we're both handling cases in different parts of the country and striving for freedom, and that's what today is all about. And We want to talk about the um, Live and Let Live movement kind of in the context of a, uh, a critique that we're anticipating. Maybe not even a critique, but more of an explanation, and that is, okay, well, a lot of this stuff sounds pretty familiar. A lot of this stuff sounds like libertarianism. I've heard of something called libertarianism, and it's where they talk about something called the non-aggression principle, and you shouldn't aggress against other people, and the government should be small and only intervene to stop one person from using force, fraud, or coercion against somebody else. It's a small government, uh, free market capitalist kind of idea Um, And a lot of this stuff we're talking with the 3LP sounds a lot like libertarianism. So what we want to talk about today is things that kind of distinguish the 3LP in certain ways from libertarianism and where it adds and shines as a philosophy and as a system of government, maybe in ways that uh, libertarianism falls a bit short. So does that sound like a good topic of discussion to you, Mark? Yeah, I'm excited about it because, uh, yeah, already people have said, hey, how is this different than Uh, libertarianism, and I kind of know what that's about, and I think it's important that, um, you know, we uh, distinguish and also analogize. There are things that are similar to libertarianism, Um, and, uh, you know, as I've said on many occasions, this sort of live and let live idea, it's a principle, and, uh, you know, there are many different ways that you can sort of describe the principle. In my book, I talk about things like Um, look, you're in charge of you, I'm in charge of me. I think that well explains the idea of live and let live. You leave me alone, I'll leave you alone. That's also another way of saying it. A lot of people like to think about it as sort of the golden rule. You know, treat other people how you would have them treat you, how how you'd want to be treated yourself. I mean, that's also a very good uh, principle. I mean, look, if you if you look at that, I mean, how would you want to be treated, Andy? I mean, I, I don't want to be hit over the head by other people. So if I don't want to be hit over the head by other people, I don't want to be sort of a victim of uh, aggression by other people, then I should probably treat other people the same way. So you, we could have called this, instead of the live and let live movement, the golden rule movement if we wanted to. It has roughly the same meaning. Yeah, no, that makes sense. Now, w- one of the things that I like about this movement, as opposed to libertarianism, so I think that this movement is in agreement, by and large, with uh, one aspect of lib- libertarianism, which is the legal world. The legal world, right, is that we're saying, okay, Okay, what's the purpose of the law? What, what, if any, should be the role of government? Well, the only purpose of the law should be to stop one person from aggressing against another person. So you can't hit that person over the head. You're not allowed to steal that person's property. You're not allowed to defraud that person. And you're not allowed to create a substantial risk of any of the above. So that's the role of government to intervene and stop those types of uh, aggressive acts. And this isn't uh, even... uh, 
a concept that started with libertarianism, right? My, my favorite, one of my favorite philosophers uh, from the 1800s is John Stuart Mill. And John Stuart Mill had the exact same principle. He called it the harm principle. And he said, the only role in which government is ever justified is to keep one person from harming another. And the government may never, and he's crystal clear on this, the government may never intervene if it's simply to say, well, we're doing this for your own good, citizen. We're doing this because we have a better idea of how you should live your life. He said all that stuff is right out. That belongs in the moral world. Throw it out. It should have no place in the legal world. So that's usually where libertarianism stops. And I think we're in full agreement with that, but libertarianism... Uh, doesn't go quite as far into the moral world and the aspirational values, right? Yeah, I think that's a great way to think about it. I like um, I like thinking about it in terms of saying we take the uh, the parts of libertarianism as well as other philosophies, because, like you say, this, these are not this is not an idea that's exclusive uh, to libertarianism. We take the best of that. And build upon that. And so, you know, I like to, what you're talking about is what the libertarians call the non aggression principle, what you, uh, John Stuart Mill called the harm principle. Of course, you can call it whatever you want. It makes sense. We call it the live and let live principle. And so all of that makes sense. Um, but I like to start and say, yeah, of course we agree with that principle. All reasonable people agree with that principle. I mean, who disagrees with the idea that you shouldn't be an initiator of aggression? I mean, some people do. We call them criminals, right? We represent them sometimes. So um, I think that this is simple, um, brilliant, obvious, and it's something that, yeah, we should be um, codified in the law. But I think another really important difference is you know, libertarians talk a lot about freedom, and I understand why, because freedom is, is indispensable to living a good life. And, um, you know, freedom is critical, and we're certainly in favor of freedom, but uh, once you've attained freedom, you haven't necessarily attained peace. Peace is something bigger. It requires more. You can't get to peace without freedom, right? I mean, uh, if people are initiating force against other people, they're certainly not at peace. They don't have even freedom yet. Uh, but just because uh, people refrain from being aggressors against other people doesn't necessarily mean you're at peace, right? I mean, you could still hate each other. You could um, yell at each other. As long as you don't initiate force, then you're living in freedom, but you're certainly not at peace. And so I think that's an important difference because the Live and Let Live movement is aspiring to create peace, not just freedom. Now, admittedly, we're, we're a ways away from that, right? This peace as a goal has to first uh, obtain sort of freedom. Freedom is sort of the first stop. If we can't get there, we shouldn't even be talking about peace. So I absolutely agree with the libertarians. I like the non-aggression principle. It makes good sense. They generally speak of it in terms of uh, don't not being an aggressor, just don't initiate force, fraud, or coercion. Don't create risks of such things. Of course, we agree with that. Like I said, all reasonable people agree with that. So, um, but that's not the end of the analysis. That's about changing the law, and it's something we like to talk about both as lawyers um, because that's what we deal with. Lawyers deal with the law, and we, especially criminal lawyers, criminal defense lawyers, as I like to say. We think about lots of things about the law that a lot of people don't think about, which is, you know, it's what is your mens rea? What is your mental state at the time you're initiating force, right? Because there's a difference between 
somebody who says, you know, I'm going to initiate force against this person to push them, say, down a flight of stairs to try to injure or kill them. Uh, that's different than somebody who's maybe looking at some artwork and is backing up and also initiates force against another person, pushes them downstairs and injures or kills them, but does it accidentally, right? That's different. Even though the acts were the same, in both cases there was an initiation of force, um, but because the mental state was different, in one case it was intentional, and in the other case it was like we might call negligent, we treat those differently. That's why you know, in one circumstance, you might be looking at a first-degree murder. And in the other circumstance, you're probably getting sued under a wrongful death type of a, a case. And so um, it's important to think through these kinds of differences in terms of mental states. And so, um, you know, you have to give a lot of thought to a movement and how the law ought to arrive at these things. But the law doesn't get us everywhere, right? If we're trying to get to a peace, then we have to talk about well, what I like to call aspirational values. And the reason I say they're aspirational values is because the law shouldn't touch things that are strictly morality and ethics, right? That's up for people to decide. You can't legislate a virtuous society. Imagine that, Andy. Imagine if, and probably this, if, if there's a politician listening, that they're probably thinking about, oh, this is a great idea. Let's pass a law that says everybody must act uh, in a way that is virtuous. Could you imagine that, Andy? Everyone must act with tolerance. Everyone must act with open-mindedness. You just can't legislate morality. Bottom line, you just can't legislate morality. So there are... And shame on us. <laughs> if we got to tell our fellow neighbors that, you know, you should be open-minded, they should be that way anyways, right? That's why we call them aspirational. I mean, to be clear on this, if a legislator said, and, and we're pushing aspirational value, take open-mindedness, for example. Uh, if some legislator said, I'm going to legislate, everybody's got to be open-minded towards every other person, <laughs> we would be opposed to that. Right, right, right absolutely. Say, even though we like open-mindedness and we think everybody should be open-minded, we don't want to change the law because, you know, once you've done that, once you've crossed over that barrier and now you're in the world of, yeah, let's just impose our own moral judgments on other people, even ones we agree with, right? This, of course, opens the door for everybody who has widely differing views on morality to have this endless struggle, which is what we have now, an endless struggle between people who have good faith moral views that we disagree on. Everybody's trying to impose everybody else's moral judgments on everybody else through the law. And this ends up in an endless struggle. That's what we have. And, you know, people have a right, I think, to decide their own morality, to decide how they, you know, to a point. What's the point? The point is at the point they're initiating force. That's when it crosses over into the legal world, when they become an aggressor, when they violate the rule. We like to call it the live and let live principle. But until you violate that rule, whatever you want to do, however you want to live, uh, even if it's in ways we disagree with, you that's the nature of freedom, right? Yeah, and I think the, the bottom line here would be that we agree with the libertarians insofar as they've figured out kind of the role of the law and um, the importance of uh, only using the law to stop one person from aggress aggressing against another or creating a substantial risk of said aggression. And we also agree with them insofar as they like to point out that there should be a separation between the legal world and the moral world. 
Where the live and let live movement goes further than libertarians, however, is we're a little bit more activist when it comes to that moral world. We, we pick aspirational values that demonstrably have created peace whenever they're celebrated, whenever things like tolerance and open-mindedness and voluntary kindness are promoted in societies, it just demonstrably leads to more peace. So I, I guess the difference is we're more activist in that secondary world, the moral realm. Now, something that I did mention earlier um, is that there's kind of a uh, per se assumption by libertarians um, that, okay, well, if the role of government is only to stop aggression from one person against another, well, then it is. it must per se be a small government. It must be a tiny, tiny government. We need to strip the government of all of its interference and all of its power and everything that it does. But kind of an interesting thing about the Live and Let Live movement is that it doesn't need to take a position on the size of government. Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. I mean, as long as government doesn't violate the rule... Uh, what do we care? I mean, it doesn't make any sense to me that we should even talk about the size of government. If you like big government or small government or, or no government or whatever, the only thing I care about as a, as a live and let live person is that somebody that, is that somebody or a group that the somebody's form, whether it's an organization or a corporation or a government, it doesn't violate the rule. That's what we care about. And just looping back for a moment to give an example maybe of what we were talking about is let's take somebody who's not violating the rule, but isn't not open-minded, not tolerant. Somebody who's, let's just take a, your typical white supremacist moron, right? Someone who has ridiculous views. And I, I only add that, that's my particular spin on it, but um, somebody who's a white supremacist, but absolutely doesn't violate the rule. Somebody who says, uh, look, I hate, I hate Jews, I hate blacks, I hate whatever, everybody who doesn't look like me, I hate these people, but I, of course, would never uh, take any action against them. Uh, but on the other hand, as a restaurant owner, I don't want to serve them either. They're not welcome in my place. Now, the libertarian uh, has to say, just like the live and let liver has to say, well, if he's not violating the rule, he should be left alone. He shouldn't be forced uh, to serve other people or to trade with other people or to do business deals with other people. If he wants to be left alone, he should be left alone. Are we agreement there, Andy? Absolutely. It sounds like libertarianism and the 3LP are perfectly in sync right now. Right now, perfectly in sync. Both of them recognize the right of the idiot white supremacist uh, to basically be a peaceful idiot, right? To be someone who doesn't violate the rule but holds horrendously uh, disgusting views. The difference is the libertarian can't say that there's anything uh, wrong with this libertarian. This is a perfect libertarian, just like the libertarian who says, look, I'm open-minded and I'm tolerant and I don't violate the rule. The same is true of the one who says, oh, look, I'm, not, I'm closed-minded and intolerant, but I don't violate the rule. Both are good libertarians. Where we part company is uh, one of them is a good live and let liver, the other is not. Now, we're, again, to be fair, the live and let live movement is going to oppose any law that does anything to this uh, closed-minded, intolerant person, right? We don't want to try to force the guy to be open-minded. He has every right to be a peaceful jerk, um, but he's not a good live and let liver. And the reason he's not a good live and let liver is because not only are we trying to change the law, we're trying to encourage people to act 
in that's why we call them aspirational ways to aspiration to aspire to good values like open-mindedness and tolerance and civility that's important too let's be civil with each other and let's try to increase human happiness while decreasing human suffering so while that uh peaceful but racist uh person is a perfect libertarian that person is not uh, a good live and let live, or they're not part of the live and let live movement, because I think it's important to have a discussion. And I like the fact that we make a difference between what the law should be and what our aspirational values are about, because if people don't understand the critical difference between a moral rule and a legal rule, we're never going to get either freedom or peace. Yes, absolutely. And I think in a in a society where um, a majority of people have accepted and are trying to promote and embrace the live and let live principles. That that um, the example that you gave of the racist business owner not wanting to trade with others, but not uh, you know acting within the law. I imagine that that person, while not um, experiencing any sort of a legal repercussion, would receive tremendous societal pressure. Um, from a society that has embraced live and let live. All the, all the people who understand the importance of peace and the aspirational values that lead to it, I imagine would put an immense amount of societal pressure on somebody like this to change their ways. Absolutely. That's a great point, Andy, and I'm glad you mentioned it, because um, even the libertarians, the, the ethical libertarians, which, by the way, are most, um, are going to say, yeah, but we'd never go to that guy's restaurant. We'd, we'd ban it. We'd picket it. We'd make a list of people who go there. We'd discourage everybody from going there. Yeah, of course, so would we. We agree. That's how you deal with a guy like that. You don't do business with him. Mm-hmm. Uh, I certainly would never imagine a restaurant who excludes people based on uh, their skin color or their beliefs or their ethnic background that didn't include me. And they said, look, Mark, we're happy to serve you. I'm going to say, I, I got no interest in going to a restaurant restaurant like that. I'd like to see him closed down. So good people of the world aren't going to do business with um, intolerant, uh, racist type people. But the law, that's not the business of the law. And that's that's what we got to get across to people. We got to be big enough to say even views that we find disgusting, uh, that are horrible, that are terrible, those are tolerated too, right? It's the same issue in free speech. It's the reason why we tolerate um, you know, white supremacists marching through the Jewish neighborhoods and screaming uh, bad things about Jews and blacks or whoever else is not like them. They have every right to do that as long as they don't get violent. Absolutely. And that's the way it should be. That's the way it should be. But we should still encourage people to act differently. So I think that's a uh, maybe we beat that horse, Andy. I don't know. But I think that's a very important difference um, between libertarianism and live in, let live-ism, if you will. Um, the li- libertarianism is maybe a, a lesser included, as we would say in a legal context, a sort of subset of live and let live. So, yeah, the other place you're going, I think it's important to talk about, um, is that live and let live is a global movement. And the libertarians are usually talking about a free society. And uh, this probably was the right thing to talk about um, decades ago. You know, maybe even just a few years ago. I don't know. Things have changed so quickly. But we don't have that luxury anymore. We're, we're living in our society now is a global society. It's that the world has now become smaller. There are people in other parts of the world who can do things that create substantial risks. I mean, case in point, the coronavirus, right? Somebody did something in China that affected the whole world. 
And so we have to be concerned now uh, about things that people are doing in other parts of the world. We trade globally. How hard is it to take out your cell phone and uh, press a few buttons and you can buy virtually any product from anywhere in the world and have it shipped right to your home? It's amazing technology. Um, and people are traveling more, maybe not at the moment, uh, while the corona, coronavirus is going on, but, but, but outside, and presumably someday this will end. Um, when it does end, people will then resume more and more and more global traveling. Companies um, are now located and do business in different countries, multinational corporations. So we got to face reality. We're living in a global society now. And uh, Live and Let Live takes that posture. And this is why we have groups in lots of different places. And we're going to start bringing some of them on the Peace Radicals show. I think it's exciting. Um, And one of the things I've loved about getting this movement going is meeting uh, free-minded, peace-minded people from all different parts of the world. It's super exciting. But I think that's another very important distinguishing factor between what live and that live is up to and what libertarianism is up to. Yeah, and I think we're going to probably get the biggest knee-jerk reaction from libertarians when we start talking about globalism, right? Because there's just kind of this automatically repulsion to the concept of globalism and globalist movements and everything like that to the average libertarian, just kind of as an automatic position, which is unfortunate because libertarianism uh, often critiques the fact that there are these, you know, these straight down the ticket issues that the major political parties tend to do, and they automatically, all the Republicans automatically support gun rights, and all the Democrats automatically support pro-choice, and having something where it's a knee-jerk reaction like that, where you're not, uh, you know, kind of rationalizing out per the issue, is a is a foolish way to to engage in politics, but I, I think that the libertarians might be guilty of this critique because every single libertarian that I've spoken to over the years, you start talking about globalism and there's an immediate knee-jerk reaction. Uh, perhaps the—oh, well, go ahead. Well, I was going to say this is understandable, right, because what is assumed, what's packed into that is uh, the, the global sort of position is going to be a big government— top-down, not consistent with the non-aggression principle slash live-and-let-live principle type of government. Of course, we would hate that. We don't don't want that on a small scale, so we certainly don't want it on a big scale either. But um, we've got to somehow get people around the world to understand and accept in their hearts and their minds this sort of live-and-let-live idea. Imagine if you could, and again, I I am not envisioning, and I don't think the live-and-let-live movement is sort of envisioning a one global government. I think this is something that can uh, voluntarily arise as countries voluntarily sign on to carefully drafted treaties that basically look like, uh, look, when our people travel to your country, Uh, you agree to treat them consistently with the live and let live principle, right? And this will do the same for your people. And then we got to sort of come up with some kind of a maybe private arbitration or some type of a way to adjudicate when there's a dispute. Hey, uh, we signed with country X, signed a treaty with country Y, and someone from country X traveled to country Y and country Y arrested them and did something to them. And the allegation is they weren't violating the live and let live rule. They should be left alone. There needs to be a tribunal. And I think both sides could voluntarily come up with a way. Maybe they'll outsource it to a uh, an arbitration company or they'll pick an arbitrator or they'll pick a series of arbitrators. There's ways to 
get these disputes resolved. But the key is what we got to get is enough people with their hearts and minds around the live and the live principle, not around some um, socialist or, or forced socialist, I should say, uh, top-down imposed kind of set of rules that is not consistent with liberty and peace and freedom and the values that we're talking about. So none of this is going to happen until we get enough people changing their hearts and minds uh, really to accept this principle that has many different names to yeah. it. And that uh, that leads me to another great point about the Live and Let Live movement, which is that it's based on a principle. And being based on a principle uh, seems non-existent in, in the major American political parties, Republican and Democrat, um, seems present in libertarianism. They claim to base theirs on the principle of, well, you need to uphold the non-aggression principle. Um, I like the fact that uh, the Live and Let Live movement is based on these principles. But one of the really important things that I think is kind of beautiful about the movement is the only thing that's important is that you embrace that principle. It doesn't matter how you arrived at it. So, um, Mark, as you know, um, there are many people we've talked about, about the live and let live principle, who have their own independent justifications for how they reach the principle. I know that, for example, for your book, there's somebody uh, uh, writing an appendix or something like that who is a uh, religious Christian who arrived at the principle through their religion. I know that there's a, uh, a, a Muslim, uh, a prominent mu- Muslim in our community who is also friendly with us, who embraces the live and let live principle and a lot arrives at that uh, conclusion through uh, Islam. Uh, I always tell people, I don't care if... Um, you prayed to your stack of pancakes this morning, and your stack of pancakes told you that uh, you should embrace the live and let live principle. As uh, as long as you arrive at that principle, and that's how you enact it, that's all we care. We don't need to quabble about how you arrive at the principle. Yeah, and I know some philosophers may not like this, and a, a lot of energy is spent in libertarian circles sort of anchoring this non-aggression principle to something. Uh, and a lot of work has been done, and a lot of it's good work. I mean, uh, the objectivists will say, look, uh, I can get you to that principle through objective, uh, testable, provable ways. There are certain truths about the world and the nature of reality and uh, the nature of who we are as human beings that lead to a conclusion to the non-aggression principle. That's great, and if you buy into that, fantastic. Other people say uh, my religion mandates that I get to this principle. God said, you know, treat others as you would have them treat you, and that makes sense to me. That's fine. No quarrel with that. Other people say, well, there are natural law principles laid out by, you know, John Locke and uh, some of these other philosophers, and, and based on that, I can get there. Other people say, well, there's this sort of implied social contract between humans, and I'll treat you this way, you treat me that way. That's great. And I know uh, this is a popular discussion in libertarian circles. How do we anchor the non-aggression principle? But as you said, Andy, we don't touch that because we don't have to touch that. Um, I think that it's sort of easy and intuitive and self-evident that this principle that you shouldn't be an aggressor, what we'll call the live and let live principle, this seems obvious to me. I mean, for somebody to ask the question to me, hey, Mark, uh, why is it that I should act uh, in accordance with the non-aggression principle or the live and let live principle, why why should I not be an aggressor? This is kind of a stupid question to me. It's the Mark, why should I not steal your wallet? Uh, because it's the wrong thing to do. It's not your property. I mean, that should be sufficient. 
um, but it's not. But we don't touch that in the live and let live movement because it doesn't really matter. We don't have to have agreement on how to get to the principle. I think most people, at least I'll say it like this, all reasonable people will get to that principle. How they get to that principle is not something we should be arguing about. So we don't take a position in the live and let live movement about that because we don't need to be fighting about that. We don't need to be all over each other and uh, upset with each other because you you uh, have a contractarian way to get there and I've got a natural law way to get there. Okay, that's great. This is a fun intellectual discussion, but we're trying to change the world here. We're trying to get peace. We want action. And uh, we don't need to resolve that question. So we don't touch it. We leave it to people to decide. It's only that you get to the principle that's important to us, not how you get to the principle. Absolutely. It's such a universal concept, too. Like we were saying earlier, these principles aren't new. They've been around. They're, they manifest themselves in every culture in the world. There's, there's a reason why uh, there's so many different ways to say live and let live. There's a reason why when you say live and let live in any language around the world, people immediately understand it. Nobody's going to take a hardline position against the concept of live and let live. It really is, as you put it, kind of self-evident. So I think that's one of the wonderful things about the live and let live movement is that it's just so intuitive. Um, you know, another interesting part, and this is kind of um, getting a little bit into the, uh, I don't want to say getting into the weeds, but getting into kind of the specifics here when it comes to the legal system. There's another interesting difference between traditional libertarianism um, that kind of tries to uphold the non-aggression principle and the uh, live and let live principle when it comes to another aspect of the law, and that is the civil law. Because keep in mind, up until this point, whenever we're talking about a government getting involved or a legal system getting involved to either keep somebody from aggressing against another person or to punish them for aggressing against another person. We're talking about the criminal world, the criminal law. Well, there's a huge other portion to our legal system. If you've ever been in a car accident and had to hire a lawyer, you know all about the, uh, the civil world. That's a civil lawsuit and has nothing to do with criminal punishment. Same with something like a contract dispute or a landlord-tenant dispute, or torts law, or things like that, uh, civil procedure. These are all questions of civil law. So, Mark, it's pretty interesting how the um, Live and Let Live uh, movement and the principle can speak to this aspect of the law as well. Yeah, I think if you... Uh, this is another important contrast with the uh, the libertarian philosophy, I think if you ask the typical libertarian, uh, hey, how would you deal with a contract dispute? This doesn't seem to be uh, an initiation of force or fraud or coercion or creating a substantial risk. So I guess it doesn't violate the non-aggression principle, right? And uh, you get different answers from libertarians on this point. But the one thing I think you'll commonly get is an answer that says something like, well, look, these are private disputes and these go to private arbitrators and then they'll resolve it privately. Well, okay, this is great, uh, but what it doesn't tell us is how they will resolve it, right? I mean, who's in the right, who's in the wrong? Uh, and, and, and to be fair about it, especially in contracts, uh, it's a planned transaction. So people can, if they want to, contract for any particular rules they want. They could say, look, we, uh, we uh, want uh, any contract, any dispute over this contract shall be 
resolved under uh, Islamic law or something. Okay, as long as both sides agree to that, that's perfectly fine. But what if they don't make any such agreement? What if they don't even write down their agreement? Well, there's a huge body of contracts law out there. And um, in terms of trying to sort of squeeze this into a violation of the principle, I think the libertarians have a very difficult time because the non-aggression principle really is limited to force, fraud, or coercion. And you even get libertarians who may not agree to the substantial risks aspect of it. I know uh, Murray Rothbard, who um, is often referred to as Mr. Libertarian, certainly thought, and I agree with him, uh, that substantial risks are a violation of the principle. But contracts are sort of left out of that. And as you said, Andy, negligence, car accident cases, slip and fall cases, where nobody's really using force, fraud, or coercion. You may remember on an earlier Peace Radicals podcast, we had economics professor Walter Block on, and I had asked him, um, I gave him a sort of scenario. I said, hey, Walter, imagine I invite you to my house, and I know about this really horribly dangerous condition, maybe in my bathroom, and uh, I just forget to tell you about it. I don't think about it. And you say, hey, Mark, uh, where's the bathroom? And I say, it's oh, it's over there. Go ahead and use it. And you use it, and the dangerous condition rears its ugly head, and you get injured. Uh, does this violate the principle? And if you remember, I, my recollection is Walter was trying to turn this into a fraud, right? Because he wants to say it's a violation of the non-aggression principle, um, but it's not really a fraud. And as any lawyer will tell you, fraud has very specific elements to it, and one of them is you have to have an intent to defraud, an intent to deceive, or something like that, and there's no such thing in this case. And so I think the libertarians have a very difficult time. What they do normally is sort of shuffle that off to, shuffle that off to oh, insurance companies will figure that out. Okay, that's great, but how will they figure it out? What rules will they use? And so uh, the way we deal with that on the live and let live sort of in, in part of the live and let live philosophy is say, look, this is a violation of live and let live, right? In the case of the what we lawyers call a tort, which is the slip and fall or the car accident case, what you've done actually is you've acted unreasonably. Maybe it's an accident, but you, it's not just any kind of an accident. It's an accident that uh, you did something unreasonable. Not much, maybe in the case of a car accident, you weren't paying attention or you were fussing with the stereo or in the case of the bathroom, I forgot to tell you, I didn't give you notice of the dangerous condition or something. Uh, we see these as a violation of the live and let live rule because you are uh, damaging another person. You're interfering with another person by acting unreasonably. That's what a tort is, and it does violate the live and let live. We could just say it. It violates the live and let live rule, and so does violating a contract, right? If you've got a contract, what you've really done is you have stolen the benefit of the bargain from the other party. So uh, these are less serious violations of the live and let live rule, and because they're less serious violations, you shouldn't have as an option uh, incarceration. And because incarceration is off the table, then we, we call that, that's what we call a civil violation. You can be uh, determined to have violated the rule in this case in, in order to pay money damages. That's the way it works now. And there's nothing wrong with that. I can tell you, uh, in fact, you and I both, Andy, have fairly recently taken the Hawaii bar exam, which is actually a very good overview of all of American jurisprudence. And I don't know how you feel about this, but, you know, my review of contracts law, okay, there's a few things I might change around the edges. I think we could improve this or that. But for the most part, uh, the law that has evolved 
at least in American jurisprudence, which comes from the English common law, which comes from the Roman law, uh, has evolved pretty well over hundreds and hundreds, if not thousands of years. And I think uh, the same can be said about torts. Each state does it a little different, both in contracts and in torts, and that's just fine. Um, but contract law is pretty good. We we do our best to let people bargain for and exchange property, their bodies, their money, their property, their time in any way they want. Now, of course, uh, there are violations of the live and that live rule in today's contracts world. Like, for example, prostitution. This is a contract, right? Um, I will... Uh, one person says they'll rent their body. The other person says, okay, I'll pay for the rental and, you know, whatever. You can do this or that. Sex for money, right? Um, and the law says, well, you can't do this. Why does it say that? Because people have imported their morality into the law. But there's no violation of either the live and let live rule or the non-aggression principle, unless, of course, you add one in, right? You're dealing with a minor or there's a pimp involved or something like that. But in the typical uh, prostitution between consenting adults, sex for money. There's no violation of the rule there. So this should be something you get to contract for. Um, I think all libertarians would agree with that. All live and let livers would agree with that, even though uh, they might add to the end that this is a horribly immoral thing and may even try to discourage them from doing it. All that's fine. But you recognize the rights of other competent adults to make these types of contracts. So um, the way we in the live and let live world treat these types of violations is to not say that they're not a violation. They are a violation. They violate the live and let live rule. But because they're less serious violations, they're in the civil world. And, you know, as a lawyer, as lawyers know, when it's in the civil world, this changes a whole host of things, right? The standard of proof goes from beyond a reasonable doubt down to something we call preponderance, which is uh, we described as 50 plus a feather. And there's a whole host of other things. Because again, for serious violations of the live and let live rule, where you might actually go to jail or prison, or at least that's a possibility, we want to be have a much higher level of certainty that the rule was actually violated. That's why we have all these different protections in the criminal law system that we don't have in the civil law system. And so, look, people uh, sometimes will say to me, hey, Mark, uh, what would the world look like if you got your way and live and let live was sort of the rule of the day and everything was calibrated around that, just as you suggest, what would it look like? And my answer back is always the same. I mean, it would look pretty much like it looks now. Uh, we'd still have cops. We'd still have courts. We'd still have judges and lawyers and prosecutors. And there'd be jails and there'd be probation officers. And there'd be uh, city hall and there'd be politicians because there are still things that we need to decide uh, in terms of how to implement the live and let live rule. Maybe we move into implementation because that's another area that I think we're uh, different than a lot of the libertarians. But but I think it's important to just pause and, and think about the important difference in how uh, live and let live deals with contracts and torts versus how the libertarians deal, or I would say ignore, contracts and torts. Yeah, and just the whole civil code just fits so much more cleanly and neatly into the principle of live and let live. Uh, so much neater than the non-aggression principle, um, rather trying to struggle and say that it's a force, fraud, or coercion whenever there's like a, 
a slip and fall or some sort of a, a um, an accident that occurs or uh, the sun gets in your, your eyes and you accidentally cause a fender bender, to say that that's a force fraud or coercion, I mean, that's really, really stretching it in, in terms of fitting it into a principle. So that's something where the non-aggression principle really falls short of, if, if not ignores it, just doesn't cleanly fit into the civil world. Whereas the live and let live principle just addresses this with as an underlying principle just so much more cleanly. How do you want to deal with other human beings when you're involved in contract negotiations, when you're involved in a rental situation, landlord-tenant kind of a thing, when somebody bumps into your car and causes a fender bender or an accident? How do you want to deal? What are the what are the principles of fairness that um, that you would want other people to treat you with in the deal? And so the live and let live principle can, for that reason, address the civil code in a way that the uh, that the non-aggression principle can't. And I think that's a really really um, good point. You mentioned you alluded to implementation issues. Um, and the thing is about the live and let live movement, this is also a subject that we kind of part ways with uh, with the libertarians on. We don't even argue about implementation issues. Yeah, I don't know if there's a, sort of an official policy about implementation. Um, I just know that, uh, look, there are many different ways when you get into the weeds, right? That's what we're talking about here, when you get into the weeds. Like, for example, we... Uh, very quickly blew right through uh, just to say the prostitution issue, and I, we talked about consenting adults, and that's fine. And um, people who are living the livers and libertarians uh, all agree that if you're a consenting adult uh, and you're competent, then you're entitled to engage into even immoral contracts with other people as long as there's no force, fraud, or coercion, and that's fine. But figuring out what a competent adult is, well, that's not an easy question. How are we going to figure that out, right? Um, we, we deal with this question now. Uh, just take um, competency, for example. Um, people, there's allegations that can be brought against people uh, that, hey, this person is no longer competent. They need a guardian to be appointed. Well, there are ways to figure this out. I, there's no sort of libertarian way or live and let live way to figure this out. This is a hard question. In uh, different states, different communities, they can come up with this different. I mean, of course, there's there could be unreasonable ways to figure this out um, that shouldn't be permitted. Take, for example, the age of consent. Um, a lot of states say 18. Some places say 17. Some places may say 16. There's other places in the world that may even have lower numbers than that. I could see places that have ranges. You know, well, if you're between this and this, then you can do these things or something like that. There's no right answer here. Why on earth should we be arguing about implementation on these types of things so long as it's reasonable? Now, you could imagine a community that says, well, we've decided that uh, a four-year-old is competent uh, to make adult-type decisions. All right, this is a very unreasonable position. And so I think at some point we get to say, like we do now, this is not a reasonable judgment. No, sorry, a four-year-old is, is not competent to consent to um, you know, adult-type things. Um, these are issues we have now. They're hard questions. They're, they're yes, they're a slippery uh, slope type arguments, but there's really no escape from them. The same can be said about things that are near and dear to all libertarians' hearts, things like self-defense, right? Uh, the rule is be reasonable. The rule is you can't use too much force. Well, what's too much force? I don't know. Nobody knows. That's up to a jury, right? How much force is too much force? Was it reasonable or unreasonable? You can't make a rule for every single situation. 
And so uh, different states have different rules. And I think that in the live and let live movement, we don't want to argue about this stuff. We recognize that there are hard questions out there that have to be solved and that reasonable minds can disagree, but we don't need a one-size-fits-all solution. I think it's perfectly fine that you know, if you're in Hawaii, the age of consent might be 17, and if you're in Arizona, the age of consent might be 18, and that's okay. If, if you're traveling from Hawaii, uh, the 17-year-old age of consent jurisdiction to, the, to Arizona, the 18-year-old age of consent jurisdiction, you need to abide by those rules. I mean, it's not, nor should it be a defense. Uh, if you have sex with a 17-year-old in Arizona, under my hypothetical, to say, well, uh, back in Hawaii, this is a competent adult, I would say too bad. The local community made some judgments that are reasonable judgments that uh, an adult is at 18, not 17, so you need to be aware. So look, we're not talking about utopia here. The world is filled with hard questions. The world is filled with questions that reasonable minds can disagree on. And that's fine. We don't have to get into arguments with each other about those reasonable disagreements. We don't need to come up with a one-size-fits-all. Let's let local communities make reasonable decisions on hard questions. And then, you know what? Let's let the market decide which rules are better. Because at the end of the day, uh, people want to live in places that have good rules about freedom and peace. That's how standards of living are raised. And so... Uh, if one community comes up with better rules uh, than the next community, people are going to find they're going to find people are moving from the less free community to the more free community, and of course, this will put pressure on the community that's less free to modify their rules. They're losing all their population, people who are consumers for businesses and uh, things like that. So um, I think that we need to be more tolerant of implementation differences. I think there are also other questions while we're on the subject. Um, that are a little bit outside of the realm of how does the principle apply and more in the realm of, say we get our way, um, how do we move from where we are to where we want to go? There lots of people can disagree on these types. I'm thinking about, to give you an example, maybe Social Security, right? Okay, uh, both live and the livers and libertarians will agree that uh, having the government, or anybody for that matter, forcefully taking money out of your paycheck and then paying it into some other person who allegedly will put it away and invest it for you so when you're retired they'll give it to you, which of course is not what happened at all with Social Security. As we all know, what happened was the government raided that money and spent it on other things and sort of put an IOU in the pot and now is running what you might call a pyramid scheme by taking younger people paying into the system and using that money to cash out older people who have paid into it all their lives and now have retired and want their benefits, this is a problem we're in. And there's no um, really good solution out of this that doesn't violate the live and that live slash non-aggression principle slash golden rule principle. You're going to have to kind of figure out a way to get from where we are to get off that program in a way that's fair, right? To just say, well, it's over, and then all the people who have paid into it their whole lives now don't get any money. This seems very unfair and unjust. But to keep it going is unfair and unjust to the people who are being stolen from now. So we have to come up with creative ways to move from where we are now, which is a, a mess of 
laws and rules that violate the principles we're talking about to straighten that out. And it's going to be a bit of a rough justice from here to there. And so why argue? Why get reasonable people who are supporting these principles at each other's throats because they disagree in how we move from here to there? That doesn't make sense. I think we should have a rational discussion and let's try to implement the best policies that create the you know the least amount of upheaval in society that roughly approximate sort of the most just thing we can do to try to get from here to there. But there's not a good way to do it. And I think if we want to be at each other's throats, let's argue about this all day long. And so in Live and Let Live, we try to not argue about that. Let's say, look, let's let's move from here to there. We need to figure out good ways to do it, but there isn't just one way to do it. I think what we want to do is focus on the principle, and we need to win more hearts and minds. Again, that's even another distinction. Live and let live focuses on changing hearts and minds and doesn't really focus on anything besides that. Because when we get enough people who in their heart and in their mind like the live and let live principle and want the law calibrated around that principle, it will happen. And until enough people get around that principle, it won't happen. And then just final thought on that, uh, we don't need everybody to agree and everybody's never going to agree. What we do need is enough people to get things done. And uh, I'll point out that we don't know how many people supported the American Revolution, but the estimates are about a third. About a third of the people supported uh, a revolution from King George III and were in favor of declaring independence. And about a third were loyal to the crown and didn't want to do that. And then about a third didn't really care, which, you know, tell me what you flag to fly in the morning and I'll put it up. And I think that probably on that point, maybe not much has changed. And so I don't think we need to convince everybody. So I don't waste my time talking to people who want to have discussions about why, uh, how I can justify that they shouldn't be an aggressor. If this isn't obvious to you, let's move on. Um, but I want to talk to the reasonable people of the world. We need to get our one-third. And when it comes to the reasonable people of the world, and to your point that we need to be on the same team here, I'm so glad that we could take today's episode to point out some of the differences between libertarianism and the uh, 3LP and the movement, um, you know, the Live and Let Live movement uh, at large. But it's so important to realize that the libertarians are our brothers and sisters. These people... Um, who support libertarianism are part of that freedom movement. They understand important parts of being pro-freedom in a way that maybe some other um, people don't. They uh, totally understand uh, the function, what should be the role of government. And I think that there's so many things that uh, perfectly overlap. Um, And so, you know, it's anybody who's trying to move the freedom bus in the right direction needs to join together in this. There, There are some... Uh, unfortunately, I've noticed with the libertarian movement over the years and just the pro-freedom movement in general, people arguing about uh, kind of getting into the weeds about, okay, well, is anarchy the best way to go or is minarchy the best way to go, very small government, or is it should it be this, should it be that? It just seems um, like we're—and people, you know, are divided in the freedom movement sometimes by this, and it can turn people off. It can—that third that we need to get are oftentimes confused, and they're, okay, these people are, uh, you know, attacking their own about their form of implementation. This one leads to more freedoms. This one leads to slightly more freedoms over here. These are stupid time-waster conversations that we don't need to be having. We need to realize we're all on the same team. We all understand 
understand the importance of freedom. We all understand the importance of making a free society. So I, I just think that that's an important thing to realize is that we're all on the same team here. No question. I mean, these are these are fun issues. You know, things like the implementation issues. I think it it would be fun uh, to sit around, or even the transition issues, and say, okay, let's say we get our third tomorrow. How are we going to restructure things to get from where we are to to a free and a peaceful world? That's a discussion we need to have at some point, and we need there's going to be many different ways, and we need to bring our creative thinking to the table and think outside the box and come up with a plan. But we're not there right now. The libertarians are our brothers and sisters and friends, and um, there's nothing certainly inconsistent about libertarianism. There's nothing you got to change in terms of your belief. There are some additional things, right? The, the aspirational values and sort of the peace aspect of the movement, and there's, then there's stuff that, hey, you guys, you libertarians can argue about this all you like, but this isn't something we're interested in. We're trying to change hearts and minds. So I agree. I would even make the net broader. I think that um, if if you're a reasonable person, all of the reasonable people in the world should agree that initiating aggression against your fellow brother and sister human beings is wrong. That's really what we need the point to be. That's where the discussion should start. Do you agree or do you disagree that initiating aggression against your fellow humans is always the wrong thing to do? If the answer is yes, we agree, then we're on the same page. If the answer is no, I think initiating aggression is a good thing. It's, it's okay to do that sometimes. I think we need to talk about that for another 60 seconds to make sure, like, is that really what you're saying? But if that's really what they're saying, I'm moving on, Andy. I don't know about you, but I got a limited number of minutes in my life like you and everyone else, and I don't want to waste them talking to somebody who who doesn't see the obviousness of the fundamental principle that we're talking about here. Yeah, I totally agree, and that's a wonderful thought to end the uh, show on today. Our listeners can check out more about our movement, liveandletlive.org. And if you'd like to keep up with our law firm, I mentioned earlier I'm in the Arizona office and Mark is in the Hawaii office. Things are busy and we are promoting freedom every day. Check out Attorneys for Freedom, all spelled out, attorneysforfreedom.com. Be sure to send us some emails. Send us your thoughts. Send us your questions. As you've heard on past episodes, we love taking your questions and reading them on the air. We like to pick our favorites and discuss them. And I'm sure today's episode maybe is going to be heard by a libertarian or two that would like to hear another point addressed or maybe thinks uh, we, we got something wrong or we didn't understand something, we would love to hear from you, especially the people that disagree. And that's one of the main uh, aspirational values about this movement is civility, open-mindedness, willingness to hear other opinions. Yes, friends, send us your questions. We'd love to hear from you. Uh, my email is andy, A-N-D-Y, at attorneysforfreedom.com. And then there's Mark Victor's email, mark, M-A-R-C, at attorneysforfreedom.com. We'd love to hear from you. Mark, any last thoughts before we sign out? Well said, brother. Well said. I agree with everything you said. And I, of course, encourage people, if you think we got something wrong or we missed something, absolutely bring it to our attention. If, If we got something wrong, we'll be the first ones to admit it. If we disagree, let's hash it out. Let's talk about it. All right. Well, this has been attorneys Andy Markintel and Mark J. Victor signing out. Peace, Peace brother.